I've spent a lot of my life in school. I've been a student in some form or another for about 22 years. I taught high school for six years, middle school for a year, and I just finished my first year teaching at a university. So uh, needless to say, I know a thing or two about tests and examinations. I've taken a lot of tests, given a lot of tests, I've built a lot of tests, I've stayed up late studying. Um, actually, by the time I got to college, I'm a little embarrassed to admit this, but I developed this whole theory that um, you test like you dress. And so this is, this is not a joke. Uh, when I had a big test, I would wake up early that morning and treat it like a pregame kind of scenario and slowly and deliberately get dressed in the nicest clothes that I owned and walk across campus to defeat my opponent. When I took the GRE to apply to graduate school, it had gotten so bad at that point that Jennifer and the kids for like four days went to her mom's just so that I could get in the zone. Um, the point is, I, I get really pumped up by tests. Um, but that's not everyone's experience. Um, all of us, though, have some sort of reaction when we think about tests. Uh, maybe you're a person that loves to show what you got. Maybe, on the other hand, you're a person that just the mention of a test puts you in a knot of anxiety or fear. I'm not just talking about sit-down written tests either. I think all of us know, to some degree, what it feels like to be under examination by someone else. It can be unnerving, even creepy sometimes, when you know someone's watching you in order to examine you. And it creates sometimes really surprising responses in us. Well, here we are at the end of Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. Um, and I wonder if you noticed that through this whole letter, it's clear that Paul has been under examination by the Corinthian church. Some people in the church are claiming that he's a fraud. And so the church has been examining him to see what evidence they have that he's a valid minister of the gospel. Uh, And and Paul has played along somewhat, uh, but many times in a really surprising way. Um, he's, He's allowed himself to be under examination, but when he has provided evidence back to them, he continually, if you've been around for this series and you've seen, he continually flips the examination that they're giving him on its head. I think chapter 10 is the clearest picture of this, Uh, Matt preached on a few weeks ago, that they keep asking for criteria for him to give evidence uh, that basically the world uses to judge people. They're asking Paul, for example, to compare himself to the people accusing him in their church. Um, And Paul responds by saying, no, 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 I'm not going to do that. See, those people that measure themselves against one another, um, they don't understand I'll boast for you, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to boast in my weakness. And I'm going to boast that God's power is strong in that weakness. Now, as he's closing his letter, he does something a little different to once again turn that examination on its head. Uh, Here in chapter 13, what we're going to read is where Paul says, okay, I've been under examination And then he turns the test around and points it directly at the Corinthians. 
And he says, now I want you to examine yourselves. At first, it seems like the examination he asks for is pretty straightforward. He says, I want you to examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. Seems pretty simple, like uh, examining yourself to make sure you're in the right position during a basketball game or, or uh, your wife asking you, are you still in the grocery store? Um, but like so many tests, in practice, uh, it doesn't feel as straightforward as it seems like it should be. Maybe for you, this kind of examination has, has often brought anxiety or fear. Maybe even right now, the way I'm building up this introduction has got you kind of squirming in your seat. It might be stirring up doubts that you just feel like you can't ever shake. Maybe it's producing doubts that, that make you think this kind of assessment actually makes me question my faith. On the other end of the spectrum, maybe some of you have never really thought about an examination or an assessment like this as a part of your Christian life. It doesn't really have a place in your kind of realm of Christian thought. See, it seems like it should be a simple assessment, um, but in practice, it almost never feels simple. I think this morning it's why we have to spend some time really trying to understand what Paul is asking of the Corinthians. So what I'm going to do this morning is, is I'm basically going to argue that um, a lot of these anxieties, fears, doubts, even complacency around this kind of examination of ourself and our faith, I'm going to argue that they come from fundamental misunderstandings that I think all of us often have about three things. Misunderstandings about why this kind of examination should happen, uh, misunderstandings about what kind of test this even is. Um, and misunderstandings about the kind of evidence we're supposed to use to grade a test like this. So that's all I'm going to do. Um, we're going to look at chapter 13, verses 1 through 10. And I want us to try and understand, uh, why does Paul want the Corinthians to take this test? What kind of test does Paul have in mind? And how does Paul tell the Corinthians they should be grading the test. So stand with me, if you will, as we honor God's word, and I'm going to read from 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 through 10. This is the third time I'm coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warned those who sinned before and all the others, and I warned them now while absent as I did while present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them, since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me. He is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves? That Jesus Christ is in you? 
unless indeed you fail to meet the test. I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test. But we pray to God that you may not do wrong. Not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right. Though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we're glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason, I write these things while I'm away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. Be seated. Now, before we jump too quickly to the test that Paul's talking about, I think something that's really important is for us to understand the context in which this test is being requested. Because the context in which an examination happens has huge implications for not just what the examination means, but the kind of test it it even is. Um, Take, for example, uh, a few weeks ago, I underwent two physical examinations in the same week, which is actually saying something because I hadn't had a physical in like over 10 years uh, leading up to that. Um, One of them was with my doctor. The context was my uh, health insurance company makes me get one physical a year or else they jack my rates up. So I go to get a physical. Um, No big deal. I went in, I asked some questions, I, you know, submitted myself to blood tests, um, but all in the context of Um, just trying to understand how can I be healthy and how can this doctor best take care of me. Now, in that same week, I had a physical examination that looked, on the surface, almost identical. But this context was um, for a new life insurance policy. This life insurance company is giving me a physical examination in order to figure out how much to charge me for their life insurance policy. So, Every little increase in blood pressure, every little something they find in my blood test, every little inch on my waistline means that I'm going to be paying more for the exact same life insurance policy. Uh, This, for me, examination was not no big deal. Uh, For the week leading up to it, I read online about the foods I should be eating that keep certain markers out of my bloodstream, lowers my blood pressure, right? I fasted the night before and that whole morning. I drank way more water than I usually drink. I'd suck my waist in as they measured around me. Both examinations on the surface looked the exact same, but the context in which they happened meant that they were very different kinds of tests. The context for this test that Paul's asking for is that Paul is planning his third trip to visit the Corinthians. And Paul lets them know uh, there's two ways this, te- uh, this visit can go down. I can be visiting you with severe judgment, or I can visit you and build you up and restore you. If you've been following this series, you might remember that Paul's had to have hard words with the Corinthians uh, a couple of times before. In chapter 2, he describes that he's already had a painful visit And that he's written strong words before that were so painful to him in writing them, he cried as he wrote the letter. 
In chapter 12, Paul lets us know really what he's afraid of, uh, that he might visit them and find them not as he wishes. And he lets them know, if I find you not as I wish, you will find me not as you wish. Look at chapter 13, verse 1. This is the third time I'm coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now, honestly, it's not entirely clear um, what charge Paul is actually making here and who are the witnesses he's referencing. He's alluding to uh, a law in Deuteronomy that's kind of a legal standard. Basically, it says, you know what, if you're going to accuse someone of something, you can't just have one person bring this accusation. You have to have multiple people corroborating the same accusation against that person. Uh, Now, across the commentators that I read, there's not a lot of agreement on on who Paul is actually saying are the multiple witnesses. It could be himself and Titus and the other missionaries that went. Uh, Some think he's talking just kind of more figuratively and saying, hey, I've been to you twice, I'm about to come three times, and if all these visits say the same thing, then you're guilty. Um, It's actually not clear what accusation he's making or particular sin he's talking about, or even if he's talking about a particular sin. If you remember from last week, he ended chapter 12 by giving two lists of sins he was worried about. One kind of described the people accusing him and challenging his authority. Uh, the other list referenced things more from the letter in First Corinthians, uh, the kind of sexual sins that were going on in their community. It actually doesn't matter who the witnesses are, or what the particular sins, or even if there are particular sins Paul's talking about. The point is clear. Paul is saying the evidence is overwhelming that you are in unrepentant sin, and there will be no weaseling out of it whenever I come on this third visit. (laughs) You see, Paul's entire letter, uh, he's been setting up this dynamic between God the Father, Jesus, himself, and the Corinthians. He's been saying, I'm weak, But God is powerful, and through Jesus, that power flows through me, and that's what gives me all of my authority in my ministry. Here, Paul uses this image to warn the Corinthians, you better be uh, careful what you wish for. You've been asking all along, show us your power. Give us some display of power so that we know you're a minister of the gospel. Paul says, if you don't repent you will get a display of power. But it's not going to be what you want. It'll be a display of power in severe judgment towards your unrepentant sin. On Father's Day, I kind of think of this as a typical dad move, right? Uh, Son, does it feel a little hot outside? Think it'll be too painful to mow the yard today? Uh, Well, let me tell you something. If I get home and the grass is still long... I will show you what pain feels like, right? Uh, hypothetically speaking, maybe some dads have thought or said that. Um, the, the point is that, that Paul is letting them know, if I come and you are still in this unrepentant sin, I will be severe. Now, it's important, I don't want you to get misled early on here by, by Paul's strong words. You might think by reading that, that that he's finally snapped. He has lost it, and he's done with these people, and he cannot wait to get there and give them what they deserve. But if you keep reading, you see that, that actually the exact opposite is what Paul longs for. 
Verses 7 through 10 make it clear that Paul doesn't want to be harsh with them. Since the start of chapter 10, Paul has been in this long, extended plea for them to turn to the true gospel. Paul's not on a power trip. He doesn't want to use God's power in judgment. Look at how he talks in verse 7. But we pray to God that you may not do wrong. Not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may have seemed to have failed. If you remember, uh, one of the critiques against Paul is that he, he writes in strong words, but when he comes in person, he is weak and of no account. Paul lets the Corinthians know here, I hope you give those people more ammunition for their critique. I want to come to you and look weak. I want to come and see you faithful. Even if that means my critics look at me and say, look at Paul again. He said he was going to be strong and yet again he's weak. He doesn't want to display God's power in judgment. Now, Paul also makes it clear that, that he can't compromise the truth of the gospel in order to not come in judgment. If you look in verse 8, he says, we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. So since verse 10, he's been uh, uh, making it clear. I'm sorry, since chapter 10, he's been making it clear he doesn't want to come in judgment. And then in verse 10, he states as clear as possible why he wants them to take this test. For this reason, I write these things while I'm away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. See, Paul wants to use God's power flowing through him and giving him authority to build them up. He wants to find them faithful. He tells them here the reason that he's asking them to do this examination is that he hopes it leads them to repentance. He wants God's power to be strong in them, but to build them up and not to tear them down. Like I said, this context is really important for us to, to think about the test in because it, it really helps us understand what kind of test Paul is asking for here. Uh, like I said, I've... I've spent a lot of time working with tests. And in some contexts, the whole purpose of a test is to weed people out. It's to identify people that don't make the cut and to say, you are not allowed to go any farther. So you think about uh, maybe something like medical boards. The whole purpose, theoretically speaking, is to find people who don't have the knowledge that they need in order to practice medicine and to say, you cannot be a part of this profession. Uh, astronauts take physical exams much like the ones I took a couple of weeks ago, uh, but in a very different context. The whole purpose for them is to uh, eliminate anyone that might have any kind of physical characteristic that could one day mean that they could not faithfully pilot a rocket or a spaceship. I'm sure you've all taken some kind of test like this at one point or another, the ACT, the SAT, some kind of credentialing exam Maybe without realizing it, you tend to think of, of Paul's examination here as kind of falling in this category. It could be why you've thought of examining yourself as, 
as something that brings anxiety and fear. Maybe you feel like this test could expose you as some kind of faker or not the real deal. Well, the good news is that this context makes it clear that Paul has a very different kind of examination in mind. He's not trying to weed people out. Now, it might not be obvious at first, um, because after setting up this context of severe, uh, if you don't repent, versus upbuilding, if you do repent, it, it might make sense for Paul to say, all right, so examine yourselves to see if you've repented enough. Examine yourselves to see if you have not sinned enough. But he doesn't tell them to take that kind of examination. He doesn't tell them to examine themselves to see if they're up to his standards. He tells them to examine themselves to see if they are in the faith. So what kind of test is that? See, I think Paul here is asking for a kind of test that you actually might not think of very often whenever you hear the word test. See, sometimes we use a test or an examination uh, actually in order to show something to someone as, as more of a demonstration of something that you think will lead a person to action in a particular way. It's, it's a test that's meant to convince people of something. It's meant to bring people in. It's not meant to push them away. Think of something like a home inspection from the seller's point of view, not from a buyer's point of view, from a seller's point of view. The reason why you allow your home to undergo a home inspection when you're selling it isn't because you're wondering if it'll fail. You feel pretty confident it'll pass. The whole point of the inspection is meant to be a demonstration to the buyer. Let me show you. I will put my house under examination for you and show you it's a good house to buy. A lot of times we do this kind of test for ourselves. Um, I'm kind of really afraid of heights. And so anytime I'm walking pretty high up when there's a, a long fall there that I'm close to and, and maybe like a four-foot wall between me and my death, um, almost always I will put that wall under some kind of examination. I'll reach out, kind of give it a little shake, maybe lean against it, kick it. Um, I I don't really think that it's not sturdy. I don't really expect it to fail. I wouldn't lean against it if I did. It's meant to show me, right, something that I was already confident in, but I just needed to see. Hey, this thing is safe. You are okay. I actually think my favorite example of this comes from the classic movie, The Karate Kid. Hopefully you've seen that movie. Um, But there's this scene in The Karate Kid where Daniel is painting Mr. Miyagi's house. It's clearly late at night. Mr. Miyagi strolls in after what appears to be a leisurely day of fishing at the lake. And Daniel has had it. He comes off the ladder and loses it on Mr. Miyagi in very colorful language, accuses him of being a fraud, a faker. He says, you said you were going to teach me karate, and all I've done is waxed your cars and sanded your decks and painted your fence and painted your house. You haven't taught me any karate. What does Mr. Miyagi do in response to this accusation? 
He attacks him. He tries to punch him, kick him. He screams at him. He gives him an all-out assault. And what Daniel learns from that test is that the arm movements from sanding the deck and waxing the cars and painting the fence and painting the house that he's been doing until his arms almost fall off are the exact movements that he needs to defend himself against every attack that Mr. Miyagi brings against him. So Mr. Miyagi examines him. He puts him to the test, but because he feels pretty confident that he's going to pass the test. And the scene ends with Daniel, without words, you can see on his face, he gets it. He gets what he's just been shown. Mr. Miyagi looks at him and says, come back tomorrow. See, this test was meant to show Daniel something true. It was meant to draw him in, to lead him towards trusting in something that he was questioning and doubting. (laughs) So you might be thinking, okay, how do you know? That, That sounds nice, but how do you know that this is really the test Paul has in mind here? I think there are two things that make it pretty clear. Uh, The first thing is in the text here, and the second is a theme that has run along this entire letter to them. The first thing is that Paul seems really confident that they're going to pass the test. Look at verse 5 with me. Paul says, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Paul's asking them to take a test and simultaneously encouraging them, hey, you got what it takes to pass this test. It's kind of like a, a parent in the swimming pool with their kid on the diving board and they've just learned how to swim, but they're really afraid to jump into the deep end. And the parent's saying, look, you've been swimming in this shallow end twice the distance that it takes for you to jump in and get to the stairs. You've got this. Jump in. Paul's using the examination to show the truth of the gospel to them. He wants them to determine their alignment with this truth. And he wants this truth to lead them to repentance and action. See, Paul's been turning their examination of him upside down this whole letter. And here he does it again when he turns the exam towards them. See, they've been examining him the whole time from the weeding out perspective. That's the kind of test they've been giving him. They want to know, are you up to muster? Or should we just kind of kick you to the curb and go with these other guys? Paul flips it on them here. He turns the exam towards them, but not from that weeding out perspective they've been using towards him. He tells them to take a test and then tells them he thinks they'll pass. He hopes that it'll build them up and draw them in. I think the second reason that uh, it's clear to me that, that this is the kind of test Paul is thinking about is that the whole letter long, Paul has been pointing to them as the evidence of his validity as a minister of the gospel. They've been asking for evidence of his ministry, and he's been telling them, you are my evidence! 
It's you. You think I need a letter of recommendation to send to you? You are my letter of recommendation. Everyone can see it. It's clear that you are a letter from Christ written by the Spirit of the living God. Paul's been coming to them with what he calls an open heart and saying, open your heart towards me. He's been trying to tell them that God has established them with Paul in Christ to share in his sufferings and to share in the comfort that God brings in those sufferings. It's like Bill preached last week in chapter 12. He's calling them to unity in the gospel because he's confident Jesus is in them. Did you notice from verse 5 to verse 6, he even switches who's under examination. In verse 5, he says, examine yourselves, test yourselves. By verse 6, he says, I hope you'll find out that we've not failed the test. See, this test and examination is linked to Paul. The whole letter long, he's been saying, you are the evidence that God's power is working through my weakness. So what kind of test is this Paul's asking them to take? This is the kind of test that's meant to draw them in, to demonstrate the gospel to them. This is a test Paul wants them to take because he feels confident that a close examination will help them see Jesus and will lead them to more faithful living. He wants them to experience God's power, but the power that builds them up. I love the language that he uses there uh, about building up. It's actually the same word that Mark uses to describe James and John mending their nets. He's saying, I want to come to you and I want to use God's power to find those little places where you are tattered and torn and weary and I want to mend you. I want to build you. Well, maybe by this point you think that I'm a little selective in my reading. Uh, I mean... Up until now, I failed to actually finish reading verse 5. Paul gives, at the end of verse 5, kind of a a sucker punch of a caveat there. Um, He he tells them, I think Jesus is in you. I think you'll pass the test. And then he qualifies it by saying, well, unless, of course, you fail the test. Uh, I mean, what the heck is that supposed to mean? Um, If you've read a lot of Paul's letters, you'll notice this is actually Paul, something Paul does quite a bit. Um, he'll, he'll state something that he feels confident of, has conviction in, and then qualify it a little bit by saying, you know, hey, I'm not God. I don't know everyone's heart. This is what I think is going on. This is what I believe is happening. But I don't know for sure. So I kind of wondered, like, what's Paul doing here? Is he toying with them? Is he trying to keep them in this anxious place? If I were reading this letter, he had written to me, I'd be saying, okay, how am I supposed to know if I failed the test? I think we all know there's nothing worse than taking an exam without having any clue what the criteria is that will be used to grade it. Thankfully, since Paul's been under examination this whole letter, 
He's laid out the evidence that we should use pretty clearly. For you teachers out there, um, he's given the Corinthians the scoring rubric that they need to use when they take this exam. And remember, he's been telling them all along, the scoring guide's not what you think it is. The criteria the world uses is not what you use for this kind of examination. I want to jump into the kinds of things Paul talks about that they should use as evidence to grade this test. But I'm, I'm not going to have time this morning to really unpack them a whole lot. It's actually something that's been unpacked for this whole series long. And if you want to kind of go back and think about those a little bit more, I'd encourage you to, uh, for example, go back and look at, uh, listen to the sermon from chapter 10, where Paul does this uh, in great detail about himself, lays out the evidence that they should be using to judge him. But I think Paul lays out pretty clearly through the letter, there's four criteria in this scoring guide that we should have in mind. First criteria is weakness. Paul calls himself a jar of clay in this letter. Second criteria he gives is insufficiency. Paul tells them, we are not sufficient for these things. Third criteria Paul gives is hardships and suffering. I don't have near the time to list all the hardships Paul lists here, but he talks about shipwrecks, stonings, beatings, things that made him despair of life itself. And the fourth criteria Paul gives is that you see yourself as needy in this weakness and put your faith in Jesus to receive God's power. See, these criteria are sort of an active kind of weakness. It's a statement about what our hope is in. Paul started his letter by setting up this dynamic. He told them that those that are in the faith share abundantly in Christ's sufferings in chapter 1. Then in verse 9, he says, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, and here's why. To make us not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. See, all along Paul has shown us that the evidence for being in the faith lies in weakness and hope in God's strength. This isn't a test to see if we make the cut. This is a test meant to demonstrate for us that we don't make the cut. That's the purpose of this test. I think for me, the best way for me to get my head around this kind of examination is, uh, comes from the late night infomercials. You know what I'm talking about, right? Um, for around 30 minutes, someone tries to show you in this production that you cannot live life without this new, usually bizarre technology. 
The one I saw recently uh, was one for the robo-twist. Anybody own the robo-twist, right? Uh, It's an automated jar opener. So what do they do to sell you the robo-twist? What they do is they put it under an examination. They film these exaggerated scenes of people's hopeless weakness at opening the lids of jars. Frail housewives, elderly people, jars that are just sticky and coated with with jelly and and jams that you don't want to have to touch with your hands. The poor folks that actually get the top off the jar end up, uh, because they're cranking on it so hard, throwing it out of their hands and all the contents are thrown all over the kitchen. After this part of the examination, they bring out the robo-twist. And like magic, these helpless, weak people can open the tops of anything. Jars of pickles, jars of jams, jars of peanut butter, metal tops, plastic tops. Uh, Ever accidentally superglue a top on? Doesn't matter. Robo-twist takes it right off. The whole point of the examination is to show you how pitiful and weak these people are and that through that weakness, RoboTwist has great power. (laughs) What I want you to notice is that RoboTwist doesn't do away with their weakness. It's still there. They're still weak people, but they are powerful with this new tool. Paul knows that they need Jesus. He wants them to see their need for him. This is why he's calling them to this transformation. He's told them, I want you to be transformed into the image of Jesus from one glory to another. He's not asking them to test themselves to see if they should get Jesus. He's asking them to test themselves because they need Jesus. This is the kind of exam that makes you see God's power is available to mend you and build you and lead you to repentance and faith. See, they've been asking Paul all along to show how powerful he is. They want sort of a a 30 for 30 episode about his life's accomplishments and great power. And all Paul keeps giving them is an infomercial for how weak he is and how powerful God is through him. So do you find yourselves in moments of this kind of examination of faith? Wondering if you've ever really trusted Jesus? I know I have. The good news is, in one sense, it doesn't matter. Trust him now. He is there for you. Just like Paul, you're not sufficient for these things. You can't even claim the sufficiency of your own faith. Your examination has shown you that you need him. So trust in him. Maybe you look at yourself and you see life circumstances and wonder, how could someone as messed up as me possibly be a Christian?
The Lord says to you, just as he says to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. Do you look at the sin in your life and think this has to be evidence that I have miserably failed this test? Good. Peter tells us in his letter, you were ransomed from these futile ways, not with silver or gold which perish, but with the precious blood of Christ. He was a lamb without blemish or spot, and he died for those very sins that your examination is exposed. See, friends, this is not an exam that seeks to weed you out or push you away because of any shortcomings. It's an exam designed to help you see those shortcomings even more vividly so that you will put your faith in Jesus as your only hope. Being in the faith isn't a display of your strength. It's a display of God's power at work in you. This isn't a test to be anxious or fearful of. Because this test is a gift to us to show us what God is doing through our weakness. So embrace it like Paul did. Let it grow your faith in Jesus. Let it lead you to repentance and let it mend your broken spirit. Pray with me. God, you have promised us that your power is made perfect in our weakness. Sometimes we can't even find within ourselves the strength to know if our faith is strong enough or not. Thank you for leading us to examine ourselves. Thank you for giving us this letter from Paul to the Corinthians. And thank you for giving us all the assurance that we need that every bit of failure and weakness and insufficiency that we find by examining ourselves is met in even greater measure of power and grace from you. In Jesus' name, amen.